I'm not going to lie. Halfway through that, I gave up on the premise and then I brought it back at the end. Um, the premise, though, remains solid. No L's ever. We don't want no L's. No L's in this place. Ed, how are you feeling after um, you know his last couple of games? You weirdo. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm all right. Uh, I'm much better uh, after United's late, late comeback yesterday. I was quite frustrated during that game. I don't know about you. Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of possession. Lots of shots. I mean, go into the details of some of that. And it didn't look like it was going to happen for a long time. But uh, it's no longer Fergie time, is it? It's now Ollie time. Absolutely. So let's go back to um, potentially happier and more globally satisfying times. Uh, Friday night last week at the Emirates. And um, we counter-attacked Arsenal and smashed them out of the FA Cup. Because some things are too beautiful to change. I know. Uh, I feel like we've seen this film before, and and we have, haven't we? <laughs> it was it was great. I mean, we didn't kick them off the park this time. It was just a it was a very very controlled performance of beating Arsenal in in the the best way they can be beaten. I mean, a very similar setup to United's game against Tottenham. I don't think Sanchez and Lukaku up top played quite as wide as Martial and Rashford did against Spurs. Uh, and perhaps Lingard was in a more sort of traditional 10 role and a false nine, but a uh, very similar shape, solid in midfield and looking to hit on the break. And my God, they were effective at doing that. Yeah, I mean, similar shape, but but crucial differences in personnel, including, you know, if, if we could say that the kind of tactical innovation um, against Tottenham was the decision to play Lingard as a false nine and split the centre-forwards wide, the tactical innovation here was to play Romelu Lukaku as a right winger. And whilst he might not have been wide uh, globally, to use that word for the second time in the first five minutes of the show... Um, the he, word of the week. It Clearly, apparently it is. Um, he was... It was uh, his position and his use of his position uh, that led to the first two goals. Yeah, certainly was. And, and he... he... Look, he was excellent in the use of that position, coming out from the right and moving inside. Uh, just a beautiful pass, sort of no-look pass for Sanchez's goal, opening goal, which was you know, beautifully taken uh, uh, by the, the former Arsenal player who did celebrate, slightly muted celebration. I don't see why it should have been at all muted, given that he was booed at every touch. Uh, just a lovely goal all round. Great pass, great finish. Yeah, and then uh, the second goal, um, I would say, I mean, the, the first goal, that pass from Lukaku is absolutely outstanding. The second goal was simpler, but um, the kind of intelligence and vision, the combination between Lukaku and Lingard, I mean, it kind of looked quite simple, but they did need to get it absolutely right. Lingard stopped his run at exactly the right moment when the centre-back was completely unaware that he'd done so. Um, and then Lukaku managed to pick the perfect pass that Lingard could take a touch and then just slot past Czech. And uh, and then he moonwalked because, because it's not enough to cause injury. You also have to cause insult. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the moonwalking was uh, a nice insult and there were a lot of very funny memes about it. I thought the great thing about Lingard's 
uh, goal was his composure. And I I was panicked. Uh, I panicked momentarily in the build-up that he would take an extra touch and he didn't do it. He was, he was, you know, fluid, single motion to control, single motion to steer it in, the kind of composure that three years ago I don't think Lingard would have, but now he does. And that's why he's, he was trusted by Jose. He's, he's very much trusted by Oli as well and, and provided a really important role uh, in United's victory over Arsenal. So, you know, and, and look, very intelligent by Lukaku. Yeah, not, not, uh, not the sort of... Um, not the uh, sort of champagne pass he provided for Sanchez, uh, but you know, got to the byline, uh, worked out what was going on, didn't panic, pulled it back into the right area. Uh, Lingard checked his run and finished, you know, wonderfully. And you know, one one of the great couple of minutes that was for United. Yeah, it was. It was just superb. And you know, I mentioned the word injury earlier, and I think it's probably worth saying that the possibly the key inflection point in the whole match was the moment at which Socrates went off um, and was replaced by Mustafi because as I think almost any Arsenal fan would attest that's a significant downgrade um, in quality and like just um, I don't know I'm trying not to be too insulting but like lack of idiocy like Mustafi is going to do something stupid at some point in the game Um, he was going to be the Greatest defender since Beckenbauer, wasn't he? When when he joined Arsenal, they always are for the first two months, and then everyone works out that they're not that great. I mean, he's a he's a German international. He costs thirty odd million pounds. You know, he's supposed to be a good player, but you know, maybe he's not. So Socrates. I mean, so the the difference is that Socrates is not quick. I mean, he he is he is a player that United could have got at, even if he is a more solid defender. I mean, I, I would I would say that you can say the difference is that Socrates is not quick, but you could also say that Socrates is just better all round. Like, I, I would certainly rather be facing Mustafi um, playing the kind of football we were playing than, than playing Socrates, than facing Socrates, really. Um, not that he couldn't be vulnerable on, to a speedy counter, but Mustafi's just a walking calamity at the moment. Maybe there's a good defender in there somewhere, but, you know, the two Arsenal centre-backs were absolutely atrocious on Lingard's goal. I mean, it was a clever bit of movement or lack of movement, you know, stopping by Lingard, but it's kind of straight out of a schoolboy playbook, isn't it? Um, look over there. Oh, I'm not over there. I'm here instead. It, it kind of shouldn't have worked, but it was, it was lovely attacking from United. I mean... Um, Arsenal had their chances, didn't they? I mean, we gave it, we coughed up a massive chance to Aubameyang, which he scored. You know, that was that was a, a huge XG chance, isn't it? Um, a tap in with no goalkeeper there. They uh, had their chances, but not that many great chances. Uh, unfortunately, the the data is not quite the same for FA Cup games as it is for uh, league games. But uh, I, you know, I don't think uh, Arsenal created too many big chances in this game. A lot of possession, of course, and and lots more chances than well, you know, thirteen to eight chances created over the game. Uh, but th- there's not a lot of saves that Romero had to make. Uh, this wasn't a David de Gea performance, was it? Uh, didn't no. need need to be. There was nervousness because Arsenal had some nice patterns of play in and around the final third and got in some dangerous positions, you know, obviously for the goal, nicely worked. Ramsey was pretty influential throughout the game until he uh, came off. I think I'm right in saying he came off later in the game. 
Um, and uh, and it looked like they might be able to make the breakthrough, but they didn't. You know, United actually, while defending deep, defended pretty well. Yeah, I mean, Kaylee's done a rough XG of 1.8 to Arsenal to 1.2 to United. Um, but I think a huge amount of that is coming from two chances from Arsenal. And the, one of them was the goal they scored and the other one was the, the header that Romero saved, I guess. Um, but... And and none of United's chances were particularly big, but they kind of we were really clinical and we weren't like piling forward and attacking them. But but it felt so comfortable once it was two one, and and especially not not once it was two one. But my favourite moment in that game was not Lingard's moonwalk. It wasn't any of the goals. It was uh, the simple act. I'm getting <clears throat> a little bit choked up thinking about it. Um, we were two one up, right? We were winning this game. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the manager of Manchester United, made us decided to make a substitution at two one up, a double change, no less, winning the game. Now I just want, I can't reiterate. So we were we were winning the game at this point, and uh, he brought on Marshall and Rashford, <laughs> and I was yeah. just jumping around in my living room, going freedom, freedom. Beautiful moment. I mean, the kind of move that Fergie might have made. Yeah. and Sorry for that. I mean, the route one comparison, obviously. But, I mean, look, for because they had a game plan. And that game plan involved breaking on Arsenal and bringing on a couple of speedy players made an awful lot of sense for that game plan. Of course, if if, uh, United... I mean, sorry, it doesn't even need to be said exactly what would have happened under the old regime. So I I won't labour the point. Uh, but no, it, is, it is deeply refreshing, isn't it? I, f- I feel like that was implied by what I was saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the 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 thing about that substitution is not only is it sort of philosophically joyous, it's absolutely the right thing to do in that game at that moment because it stops us getting sat into real, you know, into a really compact shape. It means we've got like such an intense threat on the counter attack, and of course, that's where the third goal comes from. I mean, um, if Pogba had slipped in Rashford it would just have been the identical goal um, to the one. I mean, Jay, friend of the show, Jay at RFFH, put together on Twitter a little comparison, a 10-year challenge thing of like the 2009 counter goal. Um, this one was slightly different because Pogba probably shouldn't have shot from where he shot from. He got a little bit lucky that the keeper spilled it. There was, there was that. Yeah, I think he's got a right to shoot from there. He's straight in front of goal. I mean, and I, I, I get the point that... Rashford's open, uh, but that's a much harder harder angle than Pogba's angle. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then it spills out, and Marcel slots it home, and just oh, joy was unconstrained. And we've got Chelsea in the cup next round. And I don't know about you. I'm not saying I'm like completely bullish and gung ho. We're definitely going to win this game, but I'm not entirely convinced that we are not just better than Chelsea at the moment. No, that might be true. And and look, we faced a different test against Burnley and almost failed it. A team that was prepared to sit deep and then break themselves. And I'm not sure that we quite got that right. I mean, people talked about complacency afterwards. Pogba talked about uh, not having, uh, not being, not going at it right from the off. And there's some of that, but I actually think it was not 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 being subtle enough and nuanced enough in the game plan. So United will have to change again for Chelsea when it comes up, Leicester first, obviously. Um, but Chelsea are, are going to attack at Stamford Bridge uh, and United can 
um, use a, a game plan that's been very effective in in some away games that we've played under Oli. Yeah, we will have to learn how to be a bit more composed when teams want to sit deep. But we can spend more time on Burnley in a bit. You know, yeah. In, in, in terms of the Arsenal game, and we haven't even talked about uh, what was the goal that sealed the victory, and a joyous one it was uh, for new five-year contract man Anthony Martial. <laughs> I did just go through that goal blow by blow. Ed, have you forgotten? Oh, that well, yeah, apparently I did. I just wanted to slip <laughs> in the fact that he's got a five-year contract. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, Martial 2024, there is a campaign I could get behind. Never mind, Smalling 2022, I was not feeling. But Martial 2024 is, that's... Oh, I mean, it's Smalling 2022 is the local elections when 12% of the population <laughs> turn up, right? <laughs> oh, I like that one a lot, Ed. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that was an excellent, excellent joke. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not been officially announced as far as I'm aware, as at the time of recording, but uh, is it... No one no, um, no when MUTV has him, you know, doing something, some kind yeah. of stunt. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant news. I mean, literally, we've we've not lost a game in nine games, of which we've won eight of them. Martial <laughs> signed a new five-year contract and Maran Fellaini's been shipped off to China. Ah, it's a good week. I mean, I guess uh, it's... Uh, Testament to the change in fortunes that we're a little bit disappointed. It wasn't a W. We've checked out the W Hotel, Paul. At least yeah. we didn't check into Travel Lodge on the A62 <laughs> or something. No L's. No L's. This is the key thing. Oh, so the Burnley game. Um, uh, it, it's so easy to be disappointed at, at that at the end of that game. I have to say, I, I have to say, I think that the key thing that was different about the Burnley game. To me, it wasn't even so much that, like, have we got the system right to unlock a deep-lying team? That might be true. Um, but I felt like the personnel changes just didn't work. Like, Andres Pereira really struck. He had a bad game all round with and without the ball. Um, There's obviously, like, a disastrous mistake for the goal. Um, but, you know, he's a kid. It's, I'm not going to, like, hammer him and say he's rubbish for that happening. But he, d- he just didn't have a good game straight up. And the other player, a player that I've got tremendous affection for, who I thought didn't have a very good game until really late on in the game, he started to be a bit more of an influence. And that was Juan Mata. And I, I, I thought Jesse Lingard's movement was missed. And, and I think playing Mata on the right, in inverted commas, in this system is, uh, I don't know, it, when you're playing with the fullbacks that high up the pitch, is it is it super effective? I'm, I'm not sure. He definitely didn't play on the right. I mean, normally he's on the right, but... Uh, look at his touch map and his heat map. He's not on the right at all. I mean, he spends as much time on the left as he does on the right. Yeah. Uh, so he he was basically playing at ten. In we were discussing this earlier, what formation it was, some kind of telephone number. Anyway, so two, four, four, two, one, two, two one, four. No, no, it was it it was two, four, two, two. That's what that position was. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sean Young played very high up the pitch. I, th- I thought. Shaw actually had a decent game. Uh, I know you're uh, you got an agenda against Shaw, but uh, his numbers look good in that game. Um, Young, I mean, he's obviously he had more of the ball, but he's pretty wasteful with it. He's putting so many deep crosses, and that's why I was saying about composure earlier. I, I thought there were far too many Hollywood balls, too much urgency to 
win the game. Uh, and people call it complacency, but I think it was something slightly different than that. I don't think this was arrogance. This wasn't the kind of performance that United had been putting in against these teams over the last 18 months or so. This was one where they were pushing too hard and it just needed a bit more structure and a bit more composure. And that's, that's something that Mata should have given the team and didn't really, because I think you're right, he didn't really get into the game in the way that we would have liked. And and another debate that we were having over uh, WhatsApp earlier in the day was, well, you know, what does that mean when Pogba and Mata in the team is Mata getting in Pogba's zone? Now, I think that's very true. I think he was. And I think Pogba perhaps wasn't as influential on the game as he might have been if we had a slightly different structure. I mean, these are quibbles, but yeah, yes. I'm sure Ollie will have taken significant notes from this one. It didn't quite work. And we got away with it. Two really sloppy goals um, and uh, a very, very late comeback. Uh, and, uh, and it could have been more because we were really pushing hard and the, the ref blew three seconds before the allotted five minutes. And and we'd scored a goal in that five minutes as well. So we should have, strictly speaking, got another 30 seconds out of that. Yeah, friend of the show, Cal, Gil got, Cal Gildar, absolutely fuming at the referee blowing up early there um i mean the the xg looks extremely favorable to united as you would perhaps imagine close to three 2.87 0.93 to burnley so we yeah. coughed up two sloppy goals that tells um, only one part of the story united um had about 50 percent of their shots from outside the area and, and then that's again what i'm saying about lack of composure i think just too too desperate to score the goals uh, and a lot, a lot of them were just unnecessary. Um, so, um, yeah, too so many crosses X, from X. deep and, and you know, too too many wild balls. I mean, Sanchez coming on. Wait, Sanchez, I think that's right. Coming on um, in the right-back area and hitting a 60-yard crossfield ball across his own defence. You know, mental. Luke Shaw had to control it high on his chest and nearly gave away a very good attacking position. And, and there, are, there are a lot of those. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure Ali will have spotted that. 50% of the shots from outside the box sounds like a bad statistic until you count the number of shots that happen from inside the box, which is yes, a, lot. a massive yeah. number. So, like, I'm not sure that... I, I think it's completely reasonable to have 50% of your shots from outside the box if you're having close to 30 shots in the game. Um, but but so, that is 15 long-range efforts. Yeah, it is. That's and, a lot. And, it is a lot in any game. It is a lot in any game, but it's a lot. It, it would be a lot more if there were three shots from inside the box, you know. And, and having fifty percent of your shots from from long versus short would make a would be more even more like statistically significant if you had three shots from inside the box and three from outside, wouldn't it? It's and and the other thing is it completely makes. Listen, I I I, I don't think United played brilliant in this game, so I don't want to act like I'm completely defending them, but it's completely understandable that you end up having a lot of shots from outside the box when you're playing a team that plays like Burnley. I think the the other big problem in this game was Lukaku um, playing at centre-forward effectively uh, rather than playing on, on the right as he had been. And and this, was a, this wasn't a selection choice necessarily. This was probably about the fact that Martial was injured, I would imagine. Um, yes, I, I think so. I mean, it, it's interesting. We've learned a few things and I, I'm not going to do the Twitter, social media knee-jerk thing and say Pereira's shit because he had a bad game and there's no, no. way he'll make it or Lukaku's that and we should ship him off uh, tomorrow. But in Ollie's high-tempo, 
sort of high pressing. It's not gang and pressing, but sort of high pressing. But there, you know, there is high tempo attacking style. It's not certain that Lukaku fits, and he it doesn't feel like he fits as well as Rashford and Martial, and perhaps Sanchez if he can get it together. Not sure he ever will, but you know, it's it's there is a big question mark there whether Lukaku really does fit. And maybe, as we've discussed on the show before, maybe Lukaku's best position is coming from the right because he's pretty good there. The two times I've seen him play, one for uh, Belgium against Brazil and then for United, uh, maybe he's done a few more, but they're the two that stick in mind. He's had two good games. Yeah, and you know, you say it's not entirely sure that he works in Ole's system. I mean, I would say it's much closer at this point to being entirely sure that he doesn't. You know, like if you're looking at the kind of a spectrum between he definitely works and he definitely doesn't work, I would say it's closer to definitely doesn't work than definitely works at this point. I mean, in the, in that game, like just looking at the data, it's really, I think, telling that Lukaku, who was playing at centre forward, only had two shots in that game compared to Rashford, who had five. Pogba had seven. I mean, no, Pogba's always going to take a lot of shots, isn't he? But if just compared to that Rashford number, like that is, that is not a lot of shots. Um, Victor Lindelof had more shots on goal than Romelu Lukaku in that game. Yeah. Which, which tells you something, doesn't it? About Victor about... Lindenbauer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's really coming into his own. Another very good game. I mean, there, there can be criticism of the two central defenders for the way that uh, Burnley found space twice uh, yeah. in, in very dangerous areas. Um, and again, one to look at. I mean, if, if we're talking about uh, changes that could be made and improvements could be made that apparently won't be made in the January transfer window, then central defence is one and and uh, just in front of central defence is the other and right back is another. So uh, there are definite improvements here and, and we saw some of that, two sloppy goals to give away. Uh, but Lindelof is, you know, one of the huge bright spots in this season so far. Friend of the show, Ryan Lockwood, saying about the the goal that came from Pereira giving the ball away he says I feel for Pereira yes he could do better but that was a very tight position to work from and he said actually he thought Phil Jones uh, should take quite a lot of responsibility for that as well um difficult difficult position for Jones probably but yeah I mean I I, I completely agree with the central point about Lindelof he's 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 just been consistently really good and not perfect but you know obviously he played a vital role at the uh, at the death didn't he um, Pogba with another that run up like needing the comeback still does the run up kind of kind of feeling that if I'm honest with you kind of like it <laughs> it's, it's commitment isn't it um, he definitely feels that that's a, a style that works for him but I, I loved the way that United kept pushing and I, I sort of there was what was it was it the Rashford chance um, just before the penalty was given away um, the ball kind of spilled through to Rashford and he kind of got his feet tangled when he was almost one-on-one with the keeper. And it was that one where I thought, yeah, that's that's probably us done. That's probably not going to happen now. That was fairly early in the game when he's he's almost... No, no, like... no. I'm talking about I'm talking about right near the end. Like, oh, OK. Well, there's one near, I... near the beginning of the game where he's he's basically through and not more than 12 yards out and and almost puts it out for a corner. Yeah, yes, I didn't. I was still fighting with technology at that point, if you remember it. Um, you, you definitely told me about that one, though. But yeah, no, but late on in the game, there was that chance. And I thought at that point, oh, well, that's us done. Then this is just not our day. And then suddenly it was like, oh, wait a minute. 
It's flipping our day. We don't have no not our days anymore. And, you know, I have to say, we've we've unfavourably compared this side to Mourinho's side many, many times, and we will continue to do so when we can not hold our tongues. Um, but actually, this was uh, the kind of result that we were getting under Mourinho, um, where, you know, been down and came back late doors to win. But if you look at the volume of our attacking play in that game, not too many times have we generated that kind of volume of attacking play. Um so yeah, uh, flawed performance, but definitely not a disaster. And uh, no, no, no was... that's right. And I think these are quibbles rather than than a structural comments. United yeah. created a lot of chances, just a bit more composure, and I think uh, we would have won the game more comfortably. Or I thought we, we would missed... have won the game. We missed Ander as well. I thought who's yeah, been like for sure. crucial for every. It was brilliant against Arsenal again. I, um, and and look, this is a wider point. Obviously, one I made before. Um, Matic had a decent game on the ball, and he, I thought he was doing well to drive forward. Um, but there's definitely room for upgrade there. So it really shows when Herrera is missing, doesn't it? You know, Pereira, a very different kind of player. Player who's mostly played in attacking midfield roles and often off the left. Here, being asked to basically fill in for and Herrera in a slightly more defensive role. You know, or a, yeah. An all-round midfield role. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had this discussion again on WhatsApp, but I believe one or no ball recoveries for Pereira. And we can say Burnley had very little possession. He's not really in the team to do that. But just positionally, if you're playing in that spot and not getting any ball recoveries in the game, there's probably your team is probably going to suffer a bit from that. I'm not saying that's like, oh, Pereira's rubbish because he didn't get a ball recovery. But, you know. It's just not his position anyway, is it? So we'll see what happens with him. Um, is that everything you've got to say about the Burnley game, Ed? Yeah, okay. I think so. I mean, you know, we wanted we needed to get that one out of the way, didn't we? The, the one bad performance before we go on another run of eight wins in a row. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, th- I was absolutely thrilled um, to hear... That friend of the show, uh, Daniel Story, former football 365 lead writer and now a freelance writer, um, has written uh, a third book. Uh, You might remember, long-time listeners might remember that we had Daniel on when he wrote his Portrait of an Icon uh, book. Um, And he's now written a book of very specific Manchester United interest. Uh, It's called 250 Days. And I was very pleased. It's all about... Eric Cantona and um, the 250-day ban and the story all around that. And I was very pleased to have the opportunity to speak to Daniel. Um, So let's hear that chat now. Ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely delighted to welcome back friend of the show. Friend of the show? Can I go with friend of the show? Yeah, big time. Yeah, this is this is second appearance. <laughs> um, that's official qualification uh, for Daniel Story. Who, um, well, I'm happy to have any excuse to have Daniel on, but uh, rarely have we had a better excuse uh, since you've written a book about Eric Cantona and Manchester United. I have, yes, um, did a book on uh, Gaza last year. These kind of thirty thousand word series for HarperCollins. They want this snapshot in time of iconic footballers and. Eric Cantona is certainly that, so yes. It's interesting that you mentioned iconic footballers. Last time you were on the show, we were discussing your book, Portrait of an Icon, which I can say with my hand on my heart, is 
one of my favourite books about football ever. One of the very few books about football I've read more than oh, once. Um, and then you released the Gaza book last year and it struck me that icons and iconography are clearly a theme here. Is that something that's come from you or is that something that's come from commissions? Or? Um, probably a bit of both. I, I don't know why Collins saw me as the person to do Gascoigne and Cantona, but I, I guess that Portrait of an Icon probably helped. Um, I know that the people I speak to there read the series and have the book, so, you know, that figures. Um, but, yeah, certainly for me, it, it, it's something very close to my heart uh football's a very strange game in that we kind of tend to live in the moment and the now and the what's coming next and everything's so noisy around where clubs are going and where they've just been and what's happening now that i think sometimes we kind of forget that everything that has has happened that you know football's history and its greatest players and clubs and its competitions um should stay very dear to our heart and we shouldn't forget them um and i certainly wouldn't ever want to so the book's called 250 days which um if i've got my maths right must be a reference to the length of time that eric was suspended yes for. so it's the it's the length of time between uh Southurst park january 1995 his kung fu kick and his next appearance in manchester united which is uh as you will well know in the october of that year <laughs> against against liverpool yeah, two all draw, yeah. doing the swirlies <laughs> oh, around yeah. the penalty, but around the goal. Yeah, the whole thing. Um, the listeners to this podcast will know the depth of our shared Eric Cantona obsession. Um, makes it very exciting when anyone writes a new book about it. Um, this is obviously a story that's been talked about and talked about. There's Philippe Clare's yeah. book, um, which goes into some detail about it, but it's obviously something that's been. I mean, you say as you rightly say, football's very noisy and current, but this is something that's been in the ether the whole time. Every time United play Crystal Palace, it comes mm-hmm. up. Um, what what did you kind of want to bring to the telling of this story? What what was important for you about so, it? Initially, three things to me, uh, there's three points of reference in this story. Firstly, there's, there's the Kung Fu kick, which I don't think uh, it's too controversial to say was the biggest... Um, most shocking moment of the Premier League's first decade. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. Potentially still is, but certainly the first decade. There's also um, the very famous quote, which was the you know the seagulls and trawlers quote, which came out of it, which I think is in the top two. Uh, maybe I'd, I'd say the three most famous quotes in the Premier League era are seagulls, trawler, are Keegan's love it, love it rant. Um, and uh, my other point of reference to the book which is Alan Hansen's You'll Win Nothing With Kids um, which obviously came in the August of 1995 so I wanted to tell that story for Manchester United fans I'm sure this isn't overlooked but I think for the wider footballing world it's overlooked just how big an influence Cantona was on that class of 92 generation Um, I'd already had the idea for the book but in in, in researching it I, I discovered that that game against Liverpool, the 2-2, was actually the first time that all six of that class of 92 generation played together in the same first team match. And that was a really really nice um, kind of tie-up of everything because basically the the main reason Cantona stayed at Manchester United, and it was for a long while up in the air over the course of that ban, was that Alex Ferguson went to him and said, look, I want you to be the guide to the next 
generation of Manchester United player. I want you to be both their idol in terms of your ability, but also their mentor in terms of his professionalism. And we, Arsene Wenger is kind of credited with changing the the first division culture at Arsenal with nutrition, etc. And that's wholly appropriate. But Cantona did that at Manchester United before Wenger had done it at Arsenal. His way of living, his attitude to training was far beyond anything that Manchester United players had ever seen before. And and if there's one theme that runs through that class of 92 generation, it's that they were they made themselves the best they could be. If we think David Beckham, we think Gary Neville particularly. These were very talented players, but they they became famous for, for getting the absolute everything out of their ability. Uh, and that was down to Canton, I think. As you mentioned, this is something that United fans probably are naturally familiar with. And when, you, when you're in the bubble, mm. you don't really think about like, oh, what do other people think? What do people outside, you know, do people outside have that awareness? But it's absolutely true, isn't it? It's really clear. I mean, they, they all talk about Cantona in a way that they don't really talk about anyone else, that class of 92. Yeah. Um, he, he uh, and to repeat my point, he, his talent made him an idol, but it, it's impossible to be um, highly influential, influential through talent alone because that kind of makes you a, you know, a deity, a godlike figure in kind of untouchable if you've just got the talent and you, nobody can hope to match that that has to be combined with a uh, a willingness to mentor people and look after people which i think to the wider world probably slightly rails against our stereotyped view of Cantonara's, you know genius or magician um or lunatic right. you know and that's a very they're both they're all very extreme terms actually he was also an incredibly influential figure in that dressing room yeah, there's that's for sure the case. So, um, what was there anything in the kind of research of this that ended up surprising you about this whole story? Uh, I think, that, well, the first thing was just <laughs> the very broad point. It's just how, even though I knew a lot about this incident, because it was 1995 and it was a, a time, you know, the very advent of the internet. So most thing, most of my research was done in archived paper footage you know going through the archives of newspapers um was it was a huge huge story for seven or eight months there would be at least yeah. every other day and, and for most of it every day a little update on Cantona whether it was you know a few paragraphs or whether it was a, a feature it was absolutely huge news there was one story which I didn't know at all which was that um basically Manchester United sent Cantona away on holiday he went to Paris to do some advert and then he was sent away on holiday and he went to Guadeloupe. And this was at a time when, when Ferguson initially had, had, you know, Ferguson was initially of the mind to sack Cantona or sell Cantona, one of the two, because he, he felt that he could never come back to the game again in England because he would just be continuously wound up until it was repeated. Um, mm. But he changed his mind, uh, the club changed his mind and said, look, let's just, let's focus on this. And at that point, Ferguson about turned and said, right, I, I am all behind Eric. But he was worried. Uh, so anyway, Cantona is sent off to Guadeloupe uh, and an ITN journalist follows him, uh, which is kind of par for the course, given that he was a huge story. But Cantona didn't want to be followed. And there's a story of this, this ITN journalist finding him on the beach with with his partner, who is his pregnant at the time, although the journalist doesn't realise this. Um, and Cantona basically flies off the handle and Kung Fu kicks this journalist and says, I'll kill you. <laughs> and... Manchester United managed to keep that quiet for or suppress that for long enough that it, it didn't become a huge story, which 
it would be impossible today in the era of smartphones and you know and social media it would be impossible and and if that had come out i honestly believe that Cantona would have been finished in english football because if if so soon after the incident he'd have repeated it on a on a layperson you know general a kind of general member of the public a non-footballer then i think that would probably have been it and i that would completely pass me by i mean i was of an age at the time when i loved football but obviously i was a you know, i was a child effectively so i didn't gorge upon the newspaper stories and yeah that completely passed me by yeah and as as hard as it is to imagine for people nowadays even if you are gorging on the newspaper stories that's probably like one or two newspapers and there are different stories in all the different newspapers Mm. and you can't go to their website you'd have to actually buy all the papers to find all the stories yeah it was a, it was a it makes me sound like an old man but it was a very different time it really was it was um um but this this became one of the first big modern scandals you know the early 90s had the the match fixing trials of of john fashionu and and bruce grobelar etc and that was you know that was a huge event but this was the most famous footballer in the country and there was also a very strong sense and and you see their point that that the media were waiting for this to happen because Cantona had been sent off a few times. There was an incident after a Champions League game in Galatasaray where he tried to attack a policeman on the way back to the dressing room. He'd thrown, you know, he'd retired from from France before because he'd he'd called out people, you know, the officials, the governance of the of, of the French Football Federation. He'd thrown a ball at a referee. There was all sorts, and the English media were waiting for this to happen and. And yet, even when it did happen, it was it was far more shocking than anyone could ever have imagined. So, um, oh, that policeman totally deserved it, by the way. Um, <laughs> he, he, yeah, he, 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 as, he went for Cantona or Manchester United players with a bat on, it should be said, yes. Um, Matthew Simmons probably deserved it too, in a sort of general karmic mm-hmm. sense. Um, but nobody knew that at the time. I always think it's remarkably convenient for us as United fans that Matthew Simmons turned out to be like a reprehensible yeah. human. It's Because it, really, he could have been anyone in that circumstance. I mean, there are much nicer people than him that have hurled abuse at footballers as they've been walking off the pitch after being sent yeah, off. Yeah, um, so very briefly, Simmons had links to the National Front. There were, it should, I mentioned in the book... Crystal Palace believe strongly, and it's in their interest to believe it, let's say, uh, that he was a, a QPR fan who had just gone down to cause trouble. Um, but yes, he, he claimed in court that he said, off, off, it's an early bath for you, Mr Cantona, which um, the court were very quick to, uh, you know, laugh off, basically. And it, yeah, he, he it, it was racist abuse in, in that it was about Cantona's nationality uh, and it was, you know, it was incredibly febrile. Um, but that happened at the time, and it, it clearly didn't necessarily provoke the action reaction. The, one of the other things that I I kind of knew at the time, but became very obvious researching the book, is just how much support Cantona had uh, from within the game. Um, two in particular, Robbie Fowler in his autobiography says Matthew Simmons deserved it. Good on Eric. Uh, uh, Andy Townsend, paraphrasing him, basically said, you know, his only mistake was that he didn't do it harder. Um, he had a lot of support from in the game because this was a time Gary Pallister came out and said, you do not understand the abuse this guy gets every game. And if if we're going to learn anything from this, it's not to punish Cantona, it's that we need to change how we treat footballers because just because they're paid well and to perform doesn't mean that we get to scream all sorts and, and you know, offer vile abuse at them. So that was a really 
that was a changing of the guard moment um, because actually when Eric came back, one of the really most interesting things is that um, the crowds didn't taunt him. Uh, he didn't receive more abuse. He wasn't kicked by defenders. It was as if the game realised how lucky it was to have Cantona in the Premier League and therefore maybe we should treat players with a little bit more respect. And <laughs> That's incredibly fortunate for Cantona because if it had gone the other way, then we do not know how he'd have reacted. But the game kind of matured in his absence. That's really interesting. The other thing is when you said, I'm going to paraphrase Andy Townsend, <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to say, for me, Clive, you should have kicked yeah. him harder. If anything. In and around his chest. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, why do you think, because I guess it's pretty impossible to write a book like this without thinking about this, why do you think Eric Cantona kung fu kicked a fan that day? Um, he he claims that it was a... He, he very much saw himself as this arbiter of moral justice, and I think he probably still does to this day. Um, he, he is never really officially apologised for it. He certainly doesn't regret it, I think that's fair to say. Um, he saw himself as this moral of arbit- moral, you know, arbiter of justice. He, he had been kicked around by Richard Shaw, he had kicked out at Richard Shaw and got sent off, and that clearly caused a huge amount of frustration. And uh, Eric was never more happy or more comfortable than he was playing football, and anything that kind of got in his way from doing that, whether it was... Um, men in suits, whether it was central defenders, whether it was managers, whether it was referees, he did not react, react well to that. And I, and I think the kind of the combination of of being wound up by that caused that release. He he says not. He says that um, it was all a choice. And the re- the only reason I haven't repeated it is because I chose not to repeat it. Um, but Neville, for example, says there are two players who are I've played with who had no off switch, and that was Keane and and Cantona and if they got to a point where uh, they were riled up to such a level, they, they basically couldn't be stopped until they had either calmed themselves down or they had uh, taken means to do so, i.e. lashed out at someone. Uh, so he, his teammates are of the opinion that he couldn't help it, but Cantona says he could. He said he just did it because he wanted to. But that's probably what we should expect to hear from Eric. Yeah, yeah. He's a man who's... Who thinks about performance art and things yes. isn't he i'm sure that's it's all part of the part of the myth making after the fact um and talk, talking of myth making as a united fan this this moment is clearly i mean eric Cantona would be an absolute hero to manchester united fans anyway he was the catalyst for that first league title under fergie he was after he came back from this you know the don't win anything with kids like Skulls always said that actually they didn't win anything with kids. They won because they had Keane and Schmeichel and Cantona. Um, but how much, as an outsider looking in, do you think this is central to the Cantona myth? What what do you think? How much do you think this affects the kind of the 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 kind of archetype that is Eric Cantona? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a whacking great cliche now, but we talk about. You know, in most of those icons I wrote about, we were talking about flawed geniuses because you need that, uh, you need both sides of that equation to create someone who is both hero but not untouchable. So they have to have an element of the everyman and they have to have the flaws of the everyman. And um, Cantona not only had those but was proud of them. Um, some heroes have those. I think David Beckham's a good example. He has those flaws but he, he tries not 
to, he tries to hide them. He, he tries to present himself differently, I and mean, that's how he always performed because he he shot everything else out of his mind. Cantona not only had them, but he was damn proud of them. He wore them on his sleeve, and I think that's probably what the, his affinity with supporters. Because let's face it, at that point, there were a whole lot of Manchester United fans in the away end that night who would have done exactly the same to Matthew Simmons given the chance. And this was their superstar footballer kind of doing doing something for them, just being them. Um, I, I, Cantona's, I, I think, would have always had that myth. The unanswerable question, the you know, the hypothetical question is without, um, you know, without the the kung fu incident and the ban and the coming back from the ban and the, that kind of redemption arc. Would would Cantona have been as motivated to stay and do what he did in his final two three years at Manchester United? We know he retired early because he kind of had. had you know, and effectively had enough of um, of no European success and had had enough of football. He, he just didn't want to train much anymore and he, he wanted to have another life. There was always more to him than that. Um, but I think we can be pretty safe to, <laughs> to, to, safe to say that this helped define his next two years. It helped define his redemption because f- for once he was in a position where he felt guilt. I think he felt guilt to Alex Ferguson. He, 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 Philip O'Clair says in his book that Cantona saw Ferguson as his father figure that he never had. And there's certainly an element of that in the relationship between them. They were both outsiders at Manchester United, one from Glasgow, one from Marseille. Um, they were both doubted uh, vehemently and they both proved their genius in the end. And I, I think he did feel guilt towards Ferguson. I think that's what helped him decide to stay. Um, so one of the things that w- whenever I've like looked into this story in more depth, the, I remember the first time I kind of did anything about this, one of the things that struck me was just what a remarkable role Alex Ferguson mm. played in the whole thing. I wonder if that was something that struck you when you were doing your yeah, research. Yeah, it, it was a genuine masterpiece of man management. It really was. The the the. The, the timeline is is that in the first few hours Ferguson leaves doesn't watch doesn't watch the video doesn't want to know what's happening until the morning sees it believes that Cantona will probably have to be either sacked or sold um, very quickly is either is persuaded or persuades himself that the club must back him and he must back him and at that point he goes into absolute firefighting siege mentality mode and defends Eric at all costs and does his very very famous uh, me against the world, me against the media persona, uh, which def- which which protects Eric. He then very cleverly tells the club to ban him till the end of the season, um, but doesn't ban him from training and football activity. That's a very calculated move because he wants the FA to do that. He wants them to be the ones to ban Cantona from actually playing football because he thinks if he does it, Cantona will be bitter against the club. Um at the start of, or in pre-season, the next season, in the August, Cantona plays a few training matches against uh, Rochdale and Oldham. And in the first one against Rochdale, the FA investigate because they say you shouldn't be playing these games. And, and it almost it causes Cantona to put in a transfer request because he, he makes him, he, basically he believes he's being a kind of made an example of again. And Ferguson goes to Paris to chase Cantona, goes to a hotel room, talks to him for hours metaphorically talks him down from the ledge and says, look, we want to go behind you. I want you to be the leader of Manchester United. I want you to be me on the pitch for the next X years. And it works. And uh, and um, there is con- 
there's clearly fortune to that. You know, Cantona had a lull after coming back, but but eventually came good, and and he took risks, Ferguson, because one of the themes of the book is that in that summer when Cantona is banned and not back till the October, he sells Mark Hughes, he sells Andrew Kanchelskis. Now, all right, they were not particularly surprising. Kanchelskis wanted to leave. He'd already bought Andy Cole. But he also sells Paul Ince because he thinks, oh, Ince is getting too mm. big for his boots. And it's a huge risk to repl- to not replace all, any three of those and put faith in these kids led by Cantona. But it was it was a genuine piece of, of, of masterful man management. And I'd argue it was it was the greatest period of, you know, of Ferguson's. Ne- never mind 99, never mind, re- you know, the regeneration of great teams in the 2000s. I think this was Cantona, uh, this was Ferguson's, um, kind of magnus opus. This was his greatest achievement because nothing else comes if this doesn't work. You know, if Manchester United finished sixth or seventh in the league in ninety five ninety six, and Cantona slugs his way through that season, Ferguson either leaves or has to completely, you know, has to buy half a new team. The kids doesn't work. So yeah, I think it's the greatest. And you could argue, you know, without being too hyperbolic here, you could argue it's the greatest period of man management in English football history. You really could. Oh, got the goosebumps. Got the goosebumps. <laughs> apart from apart from what Ollie Solskjaer has done in the last six weeks, obviously, <laughs> that's you know. It all comes. It, it all comes from the it, same thing. It all stems from the same thing. It all stems because there is now. If there is a, and, and I'm an outsider, so I don't, you know, I'm I'm happy to be cynical about these things. But when Solskjaer talks about a Manchester United way, uh, and a way of playing football and a way of doing things, he is talking about a culture that was embedded because of Cantona's leadership of those kids. And that's where it started. There was no, there was no Manchester United way before that. And unless you go back to the George Best era, which had long gone by then. So yeah, it, it all stands yeah. back to the same thing. I honestly believe that. This is really, it's really interesting because you then, that you're then talking about myth-making in a, in a whole new way, aren't you? Because Cantona, Cantona's whole story is about myth-making, but actually, the United Way, if you kind of asked, I don't know, 100 random Man United fans, does the United Way start in 1955 or 1995? Mm-hmm. They'd all say 1955, mm-hmm. but you're absolutely right. There'd been 20 years of, you know, Dave Sexton getting sacked for playing terrible yep. football and United not winning the league. And so that is... If you talk about what... If, if you examine what Solskjaer means or and other people mean by that Manchester United Way, what they mean is playing attacking football, but not playing foolish football, playing with skill and playing with flair, but also having enough upstairs um, to measure each situation and to be professional and to prepare ourselves properly and to, you know, never be beaten in the dressing room. And that was all what Cantona was about. That was him exactly. There was a lot else to Cantona. He's a very complex personality, but that's where it starts. So my last question then is, after writing this book, do you like Eric Cantona? I Cantona's always been to me, purely as a footballer, of course, of course, of course you want him in your team. And he's arguably, well, I think he's the most influential player in Manchester United's history. Um, as a person, I think he, you'd grow, you'd, you'd grow to look, he's one of those people that you would let off in a social situation, they would do things that drove you mad and made you tear your hair out. But then they would do something, you know. They always they they always say about Brian Clough, and he's in some ways got a similar personality that you'd hate him, you'd hate him, you'd hate him, and then he'd say something to you like that was good, or he'd give you a little smile, or he'd give you a thumbs up, and a player would say, 
and nothing else mattered because I'd got that thumbs up, nothing else mattered. And I think Cantona's very similar to that. You 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 make you drive you mad as a player and as a person, but you do one simple thing and you'd go, yeah, this was all worth it. Brilliant. Uh, the book's called Two Hundred and Fifty Days. It's available now. Um, honestly, everyone listening to this is gonna like. I don't think there's a single person listening to this who won't well, enjoy reading so. this book. So, um, thanks for coming back on Not the show. Sure. And uh, is there is there any else, anything else that you'd like to plug? Any any more broad football stuff or anything no, away from so. the world of money? Uh, like I keep plodding and plugging away. So hopefully it'll all come good. So yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, yes, I'd love people to buy the book. I honestly believe that. Um, I hope even Manchester United fans kind of learn something or gain something out of having it all written down in one place. And yeah, obviously, thank you very much for having me. I mean, that's definitely the case anyway, because you know this is this all happened twenty years ago. There's loads of people listening to this that never that don't remember it, um, which is you know borderline terrifying. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, we're all going to die. <laughs> we're all going to die. So buy Dan's book before <laughs> yeah. you do. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot. Speak to you again Cheers, soon. Mate. Thank you very much. And once again, a massive thanks to Daniel Story for being on the show again. I kind of hope he writes another book that's related to United because it's just always fun to talk to Daniel. Always. Uh, top writer. Yeah, excellent writer. And and I haven't read the book yet, but I'm absolutely certain I'm going to enjoy it, even though I could probably quote most of the details about what happened in that 250 days. Uh, but I, I didn't remember the story about him kung fu kicking an ITN writer on the beach. That was, that was a hell of a spot. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I look forward to reading that and as I said as I said during the interview I'm pretty sure literally everyone read, listening to this would enjoy reading that book so yeah um, okay so should we do some li- listeners questions I've, got, I've done I've done some prep Ed you've done some prep wowza yeah. that's so uh, you, that's unusual I know it is you sent you sent to the uh, to the whatsapp group a lovely message from at Frank Sidekick that said, Can you mention Clayton Blackmore? For no other reason than I think he has the best sounding name of any United player, sonic quality wise. Or is that just me? I enjoyed, as you can imagine, Ed, this is the kind of question I tremendously enjoyed. Um, I thought and I you can- might. I can confirm, 100% confirm, Frank, that it's not just you. Because I've asked a load of people for their answer to this question, and I'm going to go through some of them, um, and then I'm going to ask you for yours, Ed. Uh, so, Chris, producer Chris from Full Time Devils, fans of Full Time Devils will be familiar with his mysterious presence. He uh, he dressed up as Eric Cantona and was on Dimitar Berbatov's live stream today, uh, which is just you know the kind of thing that happens. Uh, Went with Eric Jemba Jemba, which is a beautiful sounding name. It sounds like a drum beat. Eric Jemba Jemba. There's a kind of beautiful rhythm to that. Um, Steve Burns of Special Gun Productions, who produced the recent live action uh, trailer for Resident Evil 2. Simple but brilliant answer. Eric Cantona. I mean, it's just nice to say Eric Cantona out loud, isn't it? I I think it's the three syllables in the second word. Name. Absolutely, absolutely. The ending on a vowel, the kind of the hard C at the end of Eric and the beginning of Cantona to kind of really delineate. So it's just a nice name. 
Bobby Charlton's got the same thing. Bouncy, bouncy. Yeah, Bobby Charlton is that's pleasing in a bouncy, bouncy way. You're right. Uh, Neil Brennan, host of Roy Keane versus, who was on the show last week, he says Ronnie Johnson. Uh, I think that's that's a taste thing. You got to like the soft year for that, Ronnie Johnson. Um, Martin Buchan, not the only Oof. shout for that, and Harry Oof. Gregg. No nonsense. He also likes Paddy Ever, but only when shortened to Paddy, never Patrice. So I'm not feeling that one. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, he says, but for the exotic choice, it's so hard to beat Rude. Um, that extra O in Nisselroy is 100. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, also kind of pronounced incorrectly, isn't it, Roy? But uh, yeah. yeah, why not? I was. I think Roy Keane is quite pleasing as well in a very kind of abrupt, simple way. I think it's a bit um, more aggressive, isn't it? I'm, I may be... Fittingly. Yeah, I may, I may, yeah, I may be uh, projecting there, but no. it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a hard sound, isn't it? Keen. It, it is, and it literally means keen, you know, as in up for it. Um, Manchester United transfer market legend Craig Norwood went with Juan Sebastian Veron. It's kind of fancy sounding, isn't it? It is. It's got a Con- lot of Continental nice types. We don't like that, do we? I mean, when you mean say continental, do you mean the continent of South America? I do. <laughs> um, professional football name pronouncer, Tifo Football, uh, the voice of Tifo, uh, Joe Devine, went with Diego Forlan, which is, again, kind of pretty and nice. But he also likes Andy Cole, which... Ooh, Ooh yeah. I don't know about that. Give him do an Andrew Cole now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you just like, if you set that aside, Andy Cole is. I think you've got to say it in a Newcastle accent. Andy Cole. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Not obviously not as good as Shola Amiorbi, but that's. Um, the boys from at bifurcated underscore MBM went variously with Andre Kanchelskis. Very nice. Mm. And then slightly missing the point, but nonetheless, um, Alessandro Del Piero. Gabriel Batistuta. These are not United players, but what you're going to expect from Bifurcated. Um, and this is a brilliant shout for just footballers in general. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. How can you not like saying Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Ed? It's, it's very good. I think all most three-name players kind of work. Things in threes, they're just pleasing. Shout for Axel Twanzebe as well from the Bifurcated Boys. It's That's hard good. to say, though. Axel Twanzebe? It's easy. <laughs> Axel Twanzebe. And a player whose name was gloriously pronounced for his entire brief, beautiful run at Manchester United, Adam McCullough. Adam McCullough's a good name to say out loud. He's gone with uh, Radamel Falcao. That's a lot of nice, chewy consonants, that is. Chewy vowels, I mean. Radamel Falcao. Yeah, more vowels and goals. <laughs> That's slow. It's true. And so this is how we know that Frank is definitely not alone, is that a friend of the show, Darren, the everyone that I'm quoting is a friend of the show because I use my WhatsApp to make all these calls. Um, he said, Darren Richmond said, I've always liked Clayton Blackmore. Unprompted. Unpro- completely unprompted. He'd all, he, I just asked him what the best name sonically was. He went with Clayton Blackmore. But he said also Jesper Olsen flows nicely, which it does. It does. Um, a couple couple of other shouts from friends of mine. Um, Robin Van Persie 
from Dominic Nozaik, who has a very good name. I think Dominic Nozaik might be better to say than Robin Van Persie, to be honest. But, you know, Van Persie has a sort of pleasing simplicity. And uh, Steve Narlock comes in with Giuseppe Rossi and Sylvan E. Banks-Blake. Mm. I'd forgotten all about Sylvan E. Banks-Blake, but that's a nice name. Too many, too many hard vowels is... Yeah, maybe. Um, my friend Josh Graham says, Dimitar Berbatov is quite nice to say. And then he says, if you're talking about shouted and shouted during football commentary, Rooney is hard to beat. No. Which, that is Yes, it, it works for Roo. Also sounds like Boo, which was a common thread towards the end of his career. Uh, and I thought that, you know, since we're on this topic, should probably ask, you know, the host of the Royal Courts Playwrights podcast, a man who probably thinks more about words than anyone else listening to this show, Simon Stevens, um, who's gone with a long list here. He goes, alliteration lends itself to Tommy Taylor or Paul Parker. Another mention for Martin Buchan, the, the heft of it. You can really get behind the name, really attack it. He says he likes the feeling of the word prunier, but it's a has a bit negative associations. And similarly with Massimo Taibi, which I agree, that's a nice chewy one, like a bit like Falcao, similar chewiness. Um, and then he's gone with my personal favourite here, which is Romelu Lukaku. I just think that's so hard to beat. Like such a pleasing noise to say Romelu Lukaku. Romelu Lukaku. So many nice syllables one after the other in a really like kind of quick, pacey way. Anyway, we probably didn't need to do as long on this as the Burnley game, but I got excited. (laughs) You did. Yeah. No, there's some good ones. I think any of them where there's kind of bouncy, bouncy helps, doesn't it? So, you know, like class of 95, none of them fit. Paul Scholes. Nope. Gary Neville. That's the, one of the worst. That's got to be one of the boring. worst. Pretty boring. Yeah. Beckham. Philip Neville is worse than Gary Neville. To yeah, be none fair. of them work. So, Rio I mean, Ferdinand almost does. Ryan Giggs is a nice sound, I think. Ryan Giggs. I think there's a there is a pleasing kind of sweepingness to the Ryan and then a nice abrupt full stop with the gigs because you've got the G at the beginning and the end of that, and the, the little the S to kind of carry you out of it. So I think out of the class of 92, Ryan Giggs is probably the nicest name to say. And some United classics. Um, Arthur Orbiston. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, not, 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 having not, that one. not actually a player from the 1930s, just sounds like he should be. Should should be, yeah. Anyone called Arthur. I mean, it's probably trendy all- now, isn't it? Because it, anything that should... You know, it was around at the time your grandfather is now a trendy name. <laughs> yeah, very true. Arthur Orbiston is good. I I like the Orbiston more than the Arthur, I think. No no shout out for David De Gea. Gea. David De I I find it hard to say. I'll tell you one that I have got a shout out for, and that is... Marouane Fellaini. I like Marouane Fellaini as a name, and I particularly like it in the sentence, Marouane Fellaini has agreed to transfer to China. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which was one of the questions we actually got. Shall we do some actual questions? Yeah, uh, let's do it. We've run out. Uh, uh, That was the most self-indulgent thing I've ever done on this podcast, and that is saying something. Well, we miss Fellaini's plan B, says uh, Lucas underscore 
United friend of the show. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I think it's crazy not to think that you you don't miss a player like Fellaini as doing what he's done so effectively. What, what do you think of the transfer during the middle of the season? I mean, yeah, I think we've been solidly calling for him to be transferred out of the club since ooh, the day after he joined. But uh, in January, feels a little odd. I mean, I think you just take the money when you can get it for for him. I I think he's not. I I'd, I would want to leave if I was him, and I was not going to be in the first team, and he should not be anywhere near the first eleven. And this is the problem with you miss Fellaini as a plan B, but he's a terrible plan A. Something like seven out of ten games yeah. he starts. I mean, I saw a stat that said he scored nine winning goals for United, three in semi-finals, which. That's a really substantial contribution. And um, and I think it's completely fair that you acknowledge that Marion Fellaini has made some positive contributions to United. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't been rightly a symbol with so much of for so much of the dark times because he's very good at a few things and quite bad at a lot of others. And often he was, he's been asked a lot of the time through no fault of his own during his time at United to do the things that he's not that good at. Yeah, well, no, I think that's right. For a lot of his time at United, the thing he's good at is coming on late in games, getting to the back stick and nodding one in. And we'll always, we'll remember many of the times he did that. And yeah, he scored some crucial goals, but uh, you're right. Take the money and run, I guess. Nicholas Lotter says, why do you reckon Matic is so undroppable? I, I think it's just, Lack of cover, lack of players in that position. Who's going to play there? There's no one else in the squad that is naturally suited to playing that deep. Yeah, and I think it's been less of a problem that he's been undroppable under Solskjaer because of what he's been asked to do under Solskjaer has been quite different. Uh, That's right. I mean, he's he's decent on the ball, isn't he? And he moves the ball quickly, so he just doesn't move quickly. No, and and listen, I don't know if you know this, right? But the official position of this podcast is he's not that good as a defensive screen. I don't know if that's come up at any point. No, I don't think so. But good (laughs) point. Well made. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thanks. XS23 says, how many signings are we off a genuine title challenge? There's quite a few still. Quite a few. I mean, you know, it's nice to feel good about eight wins and a draw since Ollie joined. Uh, and it's the kind of form, if it had started at the beginning of the season, obviously have us much further into the top four. Uh, but I, I don't know. It feels like we're a few key signings in key areas. Two summer transfer windows under Oli Solskjaer. I'd be confident that we'd be looking at, not necessarily winning the title, but in that chain. So I, I, think, I think the kind of absolute musts are right back... Or transition to Dallow, maybe. Um, Centre-back, centre-mid. And everything else, I don't think, is an absolute must for any kind of title challenge. But I think then then it's just about like cover and depth, which I think you need. For and balance. Title. I mean, United don't have yeah. a single player who's comfortable wide, wide, do we? It's, they're all inside forwards, so, which is fine in the modern game. A lot of clubs play like that, but... Uh, yeah. When you uh, sometimes in games like perhaps the game against Burnley, uh, a uh, 
touchline hugger who's going to get a decent ball in might be pretty good. Very reliant but, on the fullbacks in this system. So, which you can do with a couple of upgrades at fullback, I suppose. That's the, that's the thing, isn't it? Because if the delivery from wide had been high quality in that game, like in terms of the volume of the, the, the volume of delivery from wide wasn't a problem, was it? It was the quality of delivery from wide um, that was the problem. And so then you just upgrade the one player rather than necessarily build a whole new system where you have a right winger too. Tylino20 says, what are your true opinions of Andreas, Herrera, Matic and Fred? Has to be a huge area to improve. Well, you know, that's fair enough. I, I think uh, Herrera has to be signed up to a new contract. That would be a big miss. You know, even if United upgrade in that position, he's always going to be a, a very good uh, player in the squad. Uh, and he's you know, he's that kind of all-round midfielder, tenacious, going to put in a reducer. Uh, it would be mental for United not to get him signed up. Andreas, I'm not sure. I mean, he's a very talented player, was great at reserve level, has had you know difficult times on loan, I'd say, and hasn't quite broken into the United team yet. Uh, the signs aren't great. I think he'll have a good career, though. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Maddox, we've talked about a lot. Fred, yeah. I've no idea. Just no. I, I don't. I, Fifty million pounds. Don't still don't understand that transfer. I don't think anyone does, do they? Um, except for it rhymes with born and bred, so it's been worth every penny. Uh, a uh, good one here from uh, Eric Norgal Gross. What was better, Van Gaal's presser dismissing United's long ball tactics with a pamphlet on Marcello Bielsa's dissertation about spying on every footballing side in the country? Uh, I, thought this was, I thought it was really interesting because for fans, that was just brilliant, and for journalists too. Um, I mean, because he went on forever and it was an insight into something that most people don't see. Of course, the football community was like, oh, it was a really interesting reaction. Like, uh, first it was like, well, well, we do that. We do that level of analysis. That wasn't anything special. Then we're like, <laughs> it's disgusting. We need him to, you know, own up. Who did he spy on? I, was like, I'm, I, I may be in a, in a group of one here, but I just don't see the big deal. I mean, like journalists do it and report on it. So uh, you can't, can you really expect super, super secretness? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, we have uh, clubs flying drones over um, uh, other training grounds now to have a look. So uh, I would, if you want to do super secret stuff, it's in the uh, indoors, I'd say. And my favourite kind of snippy reaction to it was definitely other clubs saying, well, we do loads of, I think Lampard said, you know, we do analysis too. It's like, I know other people do analysis, but the idea that Marcelo Bielsa isn't kind of different gravy when it comes to analysis of the opposition. It's like, listen, Marcelo Bielsa has got a problem, like quite a serious personal problem in terms of how much of himself he invests in the concept of opposition research. You know, it doesn't always work, but... This is the man who Pep gave Pep Guardiola his like lost three nil when he was managing Bilbao, and then at the end of the game because he loves Pep was like here you go here's all the research I did on you. Pep's reading this going you genuinely know more about Barcelona than me. You know Bielsa's a special special manager. I mean, you know there are flaws in the Bielsa method, aren't there? But the idea that Frank Lampard's opposition research is... If if Frank Lampard's opposition research is as good as Marcelo Bielsa, he's going to have an incredible career in management. Yeah, I'm sure it's not. 
Dave saves and matches it down. Friend of the show says De Gea is demanding 350k a week, unlimited donuts, and Buckingham Palace is a weekend retreat. So where should the Queen move in? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dave's pad, second pad, second third pad. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's a good, it's it's a good point, isn't it? Why is it taking so long? If that's his demand and it's a good faith negotiation, it's worth that and more. I mean. United will have to pay those kinds of wages and a huge transfer fee to get anyone even nearly as good. I mean, we're talking about, you know, who I don't watch enough football in other leagues to know, like, is Jan Oblak better than David Gea? I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that question. No, I mean, he's a very good keeper, but he's going to cost more than £70 million. This is the thing. One thing we do know is that there aren't three goalkeepers better than David De Gea in the world, and every single one of them is going to cost an absolute fortune. I suppose it is, there just must be some sort of brinksmanship and one-upsmanship, or perhaps it's just about timing of announcements or whatever, you know. Perhaps De Gea wants to see what's going to happen with the manager. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. He's he's certainly stuck it out through difficult times, though, hasn't he? And and I mean, nearly, nearly it was a fax machine away from moving, I suppose. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess if he, he was minded to move at this point, it could be about money. He's going to finish his career fabulously wealthy, so it's not orders of magnitude different, is it? It's not life changing money. Um, so uh, then it's a different uh, challenge and it's it's difficult to see where he would go um, Paris Saint-Germain I guess because Buffon may well retire in the summer Juventus Alphonse, would definitely Alphonse, need another but Barcelona and Real Madrid don't no no Alphonse Arreola is a real good goalkeeper as well that's right was, you know could be the next France and PSG number one quite comfortably I think so who knows? Um, hopefully he stays. Like anything else would be a, a small scale tragedy. Although as I've said many times, I, I'm not sure I would stay if I was him. Whatever's happening at United, I think if if there's any way to go somewhere where you know you're going to be competing for the biggest trophies, because at the moment it would still be about hoping that United compete for the biggest trophies at some point. I love how we all say it's just a fax machine away, and everyone says that as if it's absolutely true, even though. It absolutely had nothing to do with fax machines. It's an analogy. It is. But I like it, though. I like the idea, you know, because you picture Ed Woodward like, deliberately jamming the fax paper or something. Mikel Osterdahl says, how do we compensate for the lack of energy in the team whenever Herrera, Lingard or Rashford can't play? Well, I think there's a wider point. One about energy and pace, if Rash and Martial, you can add to that. And Pogba. Uh, and Pogba. Yeah, but... Um, it's similar to the question we were asking about how far are we away from the title challenge? How far are we away from being very, very thin in some key, you know, Pogba's out. It's a disaster, isn't it, in terms of our midfield? I mean, there's the former manager players of player of the year. Um, uh, Fellaini's gone, super, super thin. Uh, and, you know, two injuries in attacking positions and we're a bit worried, a bit less worried. Uh, but uh, it's it's uh, it's interesting. A few seasons of not very good purchasing leaves you with a thin-looking squad quite easily, doesn't it? Well, one of the things that Solskjaer has talked about, of course, is the the fact that young players are going to play. So I think he singled out um, was it Ryan Bennett? Um, it was widely reported that it would be uh, that it was Ethan Hamilton, but he was talking about Ethan Laird um, and. 
um, Mason Greenwood as players who would get their starts between now and the end of the season. Like, so that's uh, that's a that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Um, and and that's cover in certain areas. I mean, Ethan Laird's been killing it at left back, as far as I understand. And obviously, Mason Greenwood. I mean, Mason Greenwood is scoring at an absolutely ridiculous level, and you kind of feel like if he was in the um, if he was in the uh, the first team pitcher, he'd be scoring goals and playing at pace and really exciting and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, true. I mean, and there are some talented players. It's just a, it's a hell of a leap forward. Um, uh, Roshan Williams moved to Shrewsbury permanently. I mean, two years ago, everyone was deeply excited about uh, his potential as a as a ball playing defender, uh, super quick ball playing defender. I guess he's uh, he's decided what he said. Uh, it's it's time he played grown up football, uh, and fair enough to him if if that's what he needs in order to make a career for himself, uh, good luck. Uh, but it kind of points to how difficult it is to make that that leap. Red Voices MUFC says, is there a chance that with the reaction to Poch's comments post-Palace and after a bad week at Spurs that we're projecting a little in terms of what we want to hear from him? United fans want a more positive trophy-focused approach and he's trying to play trophies down more. I mean, I thought it was interesting because there's a lot of comparison between those comments about Poch in which he said no, the most important thing for Tottenham is to make the top four. Of course, he's saying that after a week in which they went out of two cup competitions and he's never won a trophy, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and and Oli said, well, basically the exact opposite. Um, you know, yes, the top four is important, but it's all important. We want to win a trophy this season. I, I just think it's different expectations. I'm not I'm not sure this is quite a apples to apples comparison. Pochettino's right. At Spurs, top four is the only thing that matters because without that, they can't move forward. Um, and of course, they want to win a trophy. And I think it is more than just stroking your ego, which is what he said. And I think that's an emotional reaction. Um, and uh, Oli is part of the club. He knows it's about winning. I mean, I think if Pochettino does come to the club in the summer, um, he will realise very quickly that it's about winning trophies. Yeah. I mean, I think Pochettino's quotes were, was absolutely ridiculous that that trophies are just good for ego. Yeah, I mean, that's wrong. I mean, if, look, if a United manager had said that, we would be up in arms quite rightly. I'm just saying there's a contextual difference between the two. There, there, there most certainly is. By the way, given that Pochettino's come up, I don't know if this question's been asked this weekend, but I just need to make it abundantly clear that at this point I am not in the least bit interested in Man United managers that aren't Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Like, I just, I'm not, I'm just not interested. I, I have seen enough. <laughs> I'm in. I'm on the train. I don't care what happens. I just, just don't want this ever to end. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd be kind of heartbroken at this point now if if it's if it's someone other than Solskjaer. I'm 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 deeply emotionally invested. Hmm. Uh, related question, and we'll come back to the, that uh, point. Leo Naylor Orchard said, "How many W's do you see us getting from these fixtures?" And he's got United versus PSG, PSG versus United, Chelsea United, FA Cup, Arsenal United in the Premier League, Man United, Liverpool Premier League, and. 
United City Premier League, and this is all in February and March. I mean, some real tough fixtures coming up. I mean, Ollie, Ollie's point about this when I asked about it was, well, this is what we do it for. You know, it's the excitement. Isn't this what we want to see? Um, but, we, uh, you know, and, and look, the evidence of away at Spurs and away at Arsenal is that we're perfectly happy approaching these games and have a solid game plan and and, and uh, the manager is intelligent enough to work out a game plan for those games. But these are super tough fixtures and there's every scenario in which United could lose four of those games, for example. I do not mind how many wins we get out of these games, I have to say. What I would hate to see is the team retrenching into an older version of itself or not being expressive on the pitch or I'd hate to see a bunch of key injuries derail us or something like that or I'd hate for Sasha to make like massive selection errors or substitution errors or something along those lines uh, there's no shame in losing to Paris Saint-Germain there's pain in losing to Liverpool but there's obviously no shame in it in the sense of like where they're at at the moment and where we're at at the moment um Arsenal obviously like that doesn't even count <clears throat> that's 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 a W in the bank isn't it um, Chelsea away, uh, Chelsea away. I'd love to win that mostly because it's mostly because it would be really sad to get knocked out of the FA Cup at this point. Yeah, um, and, and uh, you know it's a most realistic chance of a trophy for sure. Yeah, but so I've no idea how many wins we're going to get. But what's incredible is thinking about that run of fixtures as something to kind of, you know, like you said that Solskjaer's quote, of course Solskjaer said that because, as he, I mean, you could just program, you could just guess what his answer's going to be to any question. Like after the, after the two goals, I was like, I wonder if Oli Gold and Solskjaer is going to say something about how late comebacks are in the DNA of this club. Um, and uh, that's lovely. There's no, nothing wrong with that. Oh, by the way, Juan Mata, and his, it's been five years that Juan Mata's at United, and he put in his blog that the, what people might not remember is that his first game was uh, there was somebody on the opposition bench, and that was the current manager who said, um, who said, enjoy it. This is, you know, have a great time at this club. And uh, I remember seeing Solskjaer say that to Mata in the tunnel because it was, it was caught on camera. I remember feeling quite emotional about it at the time, so it's nice to remember it. Huh. Um, a, a related point on Mata, and it's a digression, check out his stats before he encountered Mourinho at Chelsea because <laughs> they are as good as anybody in Europe in that position. Yeah, he's he's had his career ruined by Jose Mourinho and it's too late now. Yeah, and yeah. The, the thing that I was going to go on to say is like the, the thing is Solskjaer's absolutely right because there's no I would have been absolutely dreading these months and, and thinking about all the football we're going to have to kind of suffer through in the hope that we, you know, pull off a win in the details. And now I think we're going to, to go toe-to-toe with a bunch of some of the better teams in the world and see what happens. You know, well, he doesn't care stu- about the details, it's all the big picture. Not, not Yeah, not in a stupid way. We're not going to be like crazily gung-ho. We haven't been, you know, it hasn't been stupidly attacking. It's just been sophisticated but attack-minded. Right. Um, and and that's going to be really exciting to see. And yeah, PSG are, are a stronger squad than us, but I'm I'm not ruling out our chances in that game or the Chelsea game. Definitely not Liverpool at home. Like it's going to be a tough game, but I'm not terrified or anything. Sure. Mikel Tonen says, a friend of the show now, I think, since he uh, asks seven or eight questions a week. I'm okay, exa- that'll get you there. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. 
<laughs> don't everyone do that, please. <laughs> I won't be able to cope. Uh, don't know about you lads, but I don't. I can't remember the last time the United Equaliser sent me leaping out of my chair and shouting so hard my cat still hasn't come out from under the bed. <laughs> I have to say, I uh, I did fly up uh, when that equaliser went in. Um, it, it feels good, doesn't it? Even though it was only an equaliser. Unconfirmed rumours that I was jumping around my living room shouting no L's at the top of my voice. <laughs> No L's. We do not know what they are. No L's. No L's ever. Related people, including Paul, I think that's you, uh, says Football Nuggets, at Mere Opinions, uh, keep on saying we'll eventually lose under Ollie. Why do they say so? What kind yeah. of hint have they got to predict this absurd result? <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, absolutely true. right. I mean, do the regression analysis on this one and United have a, like a 0.97 chance. Of, I'm exaggerating. It's not quite that high. Uh, chance of a win. But, it, yeah, round it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. No L's ever. Thank you for correcting my foolish mistake. Imagine if he doesn't lose all season. Anyway, that's... Uh, you know, to, have, have we got a serious question about which about managers? Because you said we'll come back to this point. Did you have a question in mind or can I just rant a bit more? Go, go, go for it. I actually think it's completely reasonable and sensible at this point to... I'm, I'm kind of playing up the emotional and sentimental aspect of it, but I actually think there's there's a lot of very sound logic in appointing Solskjaer. Um, if, like, the choices were keep going with Solskjaer or, I don't know, Guardiola three or four years ago, Klopp three or four years ago, you know, then you're having a, a really serious conversation. And I think that if you're say, saying the choices are, because the Zidane talk has gone very quiet. I, I think the, the story is that he doesn't really want that job. So let's kind of leave him to the side. If you're really comparing Pochettino and, and Solskjaer, I mean, I, I've been very bullish about Pochettino and continue to be and think he's done a remarkable job at Spurs. But but I don't think there is um, mountains more evidence that Pochettino would be the right choice for United than Solskjaer. I, I think people vastly... I can't, I can't remember. I haven't listened back to last week's show. I think this was just a conversation that you and I were having separately. But, but getting the club and institutional knowledge are very similar things. So institutional knowledge is actually an important and valuable tool for any leader in any organisation. And so getting the club is not nothing. Is tactical acumen, I mean, he's kind of renowned as a as being tactically flexible in Norway, from what I understand, um, from reading one article. <laughs> Just to clarify, I'm not claiming advanced knowledge on this subject. But we've seen tactical flexibility. The man management is extraordinary. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's challenges ahead, but there's challenges ahead for any manager that comes in. And I, I don't think there's an overwhelming weight of evidence to suggest that it's pure sentiment and irrationality that would want you to keep want Oli to keep the job. No, but it is only nine games, and I think it's fair to look over a longer piece than that. Just as you wouldn't really expect to sack a manager after nine games. I mean, obviously it happens, um, but you wouldn't generally expect to. I, I'm not sure that you can uh, for sure say this isn't just the adrenaline bump. Uh, and it's it for sure it is more than the adrenaline bump, but there's quite a lot of it, you know. Um, in the same way, when a player comes back from injury, they're often great before the actual lack of fitness comes kicks in. You know, will it tail off? Uh, and that's what I'd like to see. Is there more to 
Ollie, then just the we've you know we've liberated these players from the doom that was uh, surrounding and engulfing the club before it, you know. They're, and and, they're, and I wouldn't. Like, I'm not saying that he won't uh, he he won't prove himself to be right. We've got time. Doesn't have to be made tomorrow. This appointment. No, I agree, but I I just think that the counter to that is, first of all, I think the mood bump really, really, really explained those first couple of games where we like scored a hundred goals in every game or whatever. But really and truly, the story of the last three or four weeks has been about sensible tactical decisions and smart rotation, and you know, and and the, the team is completely unrecognizable tactically from what it was under Mourinho so that that's that you know it's not just they're kind of emotionally lifted and liberated they're also tactically liberated aren't they and I I agree with you we need we do need to see more but um I'm ready (laughs) I, I don't need to see any more I'm done I'm happy this is fine All right, very good. Uh, just one more question to finish. Oh no, let's go. Let's get a couple of questions. To finish the show. Okay. Um, okay. First, because I want to make a point about one of the other. Andy McCoy says, "Should Graham Sooness be worried about Trevor Francis stealing his punditry <laughs> agenda?" I mean, I've got to say, I don't. Th- I think Sooness would be embarrassed. I don't know whether you've seen it. Seen it. This is Trevor Francis on, I think, being sports. Yeah, you sent it to me. Yeah, who says? Uh, uh, Pogba's just a luxury player. He's never going to win you a trophy. <laughs> uh, forgetting the four Serie R titles, the two Serie R Cups, the Europa League, the League Cup, the World Cup. Any others? Have I missed any? The, the under-20 World, World Cup. The man, the man gave an inspirational speech to his nation before the World Cup final, then scored in the World Cup final. Like, what? what's wrong with these... Oh, I... Oh, Actually, the thing is, I'm asking what's wrong with these people, but the thing is, we know what's wrong with these people. And yes, anybody he's, got, who, he's got a touch in the Neil Warnocks, I'd say. Anybody who doesn't see this for what it is or doesn't want to see this or rejects the people that say, this is why this is happening, you know. This isn't a coincidence that this is happening to a player that looks like Paul Pogba. That's not a coincidence. You hear people talk about Steven Gerrard, like, oh, you'll never win a league title with Steven Gerrard in the team, when actually you never win a league title with Steven Gerrard in the team. Like, uh, Yeah, just a luxury player, Gerrard. I mean, obviously, like, he won loads of trophies, but I'm just saying, not you never used to hear... Oh, come on. Like, he won the European... And, uh, come on, don't just... Don't don't be stupidly tribal for the sake of... Well, he won the European Cup, he won FA Cups, you know, like... He won trophies, um, but the the point being, I'm furious. <laughs> That's the point. You lost the run of yourself because you. No, yeah. I, 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 I I'm, an, I'm would... annoyed that I'm annoyed that you made the point about Gerard not winning that many trophies because that's not the flipping point, is well, it? Well, you said loads. I was just qualifying that. All right, fine. you won a few. I think he's averaging less than one a season. <laughs> Show that to Ryan Giggs. Uh... <laughs> but the, the the point being. It's racist nonsense. Like that's the point. Like um, the this ah, can't I can't even talk about it. <clears throat> All right, final question related to tonight's game. Is it true that Sam Vokes refers to his car as the Volkswagen? <laughs> I hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. I hope he's got it painted on the side. <laughs> It'd be a shame if he drives an Audi. Yeah, it would. 
Let's move on, shall we? We've got a game of the weekend. Yeah, we have. We're playing Leicester City, who are in weird form this season. Um, and uh, there's sort of like loads of their fans want Puel out, even though they're 10th in the league. Everyone wants Puel out all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because it's Puel. They're playing Liverpool next. So, uh, and tonight, in fact, as we record. They're currently won all that game. Just just look, 67 minutes in, Harry Maguire scored an equaliser just before half-time. Yeah, uh, talking of the title race, just to digress slightly, it's 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 a bit hard, this one, because City lost to Newcastle. Uh, big cheer went up at Old Trafford when that one was read out. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, no, <laughs> I don't think we want to be cheering that. We, we might actually be wanting to support City in this. Well, of course, we want them all to collapse and United to win every game from here until the end of the season still might not do it I think 87 points is our max probably won't do it anyway Leicester Leicester have lost to Wolverhampton last week lost to Southampton lost to Cardiff they lost to Newport by the way (laughs) lost to Palace lost to Tottenham beat Manchester City yeah beat Chelsea so that boxing, day, that boxing Day result is super weird and it's super weird timing. I, I mean, I don't... Uh, this is not a gimme, this game. Like, I'm not I'm not going into this swinging the arms like Conor McGregor being just like, yeah, we're going to bowl in here. Welcome back to the W Hotel. Uh, we hope you enjoyed your one-week break. Um, I think I think this could be this could be a potentially a tricky tie. I mean, it's a little bit unfortunate that we're recording this literally during the Liverpool-Leicester game, isn't it? Because it'd be interesting to know what that result will be and how that will end up affecting them. Um, and if if that will end up affecting them. Yeah, um, I mean, look, their, their problem is goals, and this is why half the Leicester fans want them out. You know, they are 10th, you say. That's about where they're, I'm going to guess, about where their uh, wage bill allows them to be. It's, it's yeah. about appropriate for... Leicester, you know, obviously they had that freak season where they won the league and all that. But, you know, so anyway, scoring goals, 28 uh, all season in the Premier League, um, of which six, five, well, four were from a penalty and and two were from, and the other, and four were from set pieces. So, you know, tight at the back, lads. Mm. I'm looking at you, Phil Jones, Chris Morling's (laughs) training again. Uh, and their, their normal sort of goal machine isn't quite working. You know, Vardy's got seven this season, but it's no great shakes for him. He, he, you know, he was into twenty odd, wasn't he, in the season they won the league? Uh, and no one else really scores. James Madison, who is a good player, scores from midfield. Yeah, I was just going to. I was just going to mention James Madison. Really, um, five goals, four assists, a really good return for a player coming up to the Premier League from the Championship playing in his first season of Premier League football I think he's he's adapted really well and um I, I'm I'm sure his ceiling is is higher than Leicester isn't it um and that you know that they've they've not conceded a ton have they this season um but you definitely if we play well we're going to win this game like that's 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 where we're at now isn't it and there's there's kind of every chance that we're going to play well i mean you know they 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 are like there's only you have to go to fourth in the table before you find a team that's conceded fewer goals than them. Um, so they're they're obviously like they've they've conceded fewer goals than we have this season by a substantial number. There's six fewer goals than us across the season, but they've scored nearly twenty less than us. Um, 
We wouldn't be we wouldn't be saying that if a certain someone hadn't left and been replaced by a joyous Wonder Man. Yeah, and I think that the thing with Leicester is that you know it's not great football, and they're quite a slow side, and the build up is slow. You know, and I can kind of understand why the the fans might be agitated. It's not the kind of side that typically you'd think causes this United team a lot of problems. Obviously, set pieces have been a problem this season. Uh, and even a couple of goals under Oli uh, conceded from set pieces. Um, two goals yesterday that definitely shouldn't have been conceded. One from a sort of long floaty ball. So positioning of the centre backs is certainly an issue. Definitely you know, exposed in those set piece numbers. Um, that will be key, given that Leicester do score a few goals from set pieces. Um, but yeah, it's not a quick side. I I expect United to cause them. A lot of trouble if we're breaking. It'll be interesting to see whether Leicester looked to have that much of the ball, though. I mean, Damari Gray's really, really quick, and Jamie yeah. Vardy's really quick, isn't he? So, well, yeah, maybe not as quick as he once was. Damari Gray is quick, and he's and he's playing a lot of games. Yeah. Um, no, but like you know, nowadays we don't look at their strengths. We look at the weaknesses that we can exploit, don't we? Right? <laughs> that's right. That's, yeah. that's what we I, do. I mean, and there are a lot of weaknesses. That not too many top players. Really, you know, so Vardy, yes, wants, but he's not scoring a lot of goals. Ben Chilwell, the left back, I like. I think he's a, he's um, he's a good player. If we wanted a bit of competition for Luke Shaw, he might be an option. Uh, we uh, do, yeah. I think we probably I, do. I, I think I think hopefully that will come from Ethan Laird, given that Oli Solskjaer is a manager now. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> um, the 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 thing that I would say is the one thing that I really don't want to see is United. Is it basically? I don't mean this in a nasty way, but I don't really want to see Romelu Lukaku playing in this game. Not for him per se, but I don't really want Ashley Young floating crosses into the back stick, basically, because they got Harry Maguire, and so we shouldn't really be lumping crosses into the box in this game. We should be looking to, you know, craft open little one twos around the edge of the box. And yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to see a, a Martial Rashford Lingard front three in this game. I think I think that's right. Yeah, deep deep crosses are gonna you know that's meat and drink to Harry Maguire, isn't it? So yeah, and 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 the the other thing, the United's weakness is conceding a lot of shots. Leicester don't take a lot of shots. The, no one in the team averages more than two point seven shots a game. It's low, really low. Yeah. So I, I think it's all there for United. I I would imagine that Leicester will play this fairly cagey, and United will have a lot of the ball. So you know it won't be exactly Burnley or Brighton. Two games in which we've, you know, struggled a little bit, uh, but it might be a little bit like that, and it's uh, it's important that the team keeps tempo really high. I mean, let's know? not be excessively revisionist about how much we struggled against Brighton, a team that we were comfortably two 0 up and cruising at half time, <laughs> and we were like a bit shaking the second half, but yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm going to predict a 2-1 win to United. I don't think it's going to be Oof. massive, massive, massive big things. But I think I think we will win that game. I mean, I don't. I, I have no idea whether why we, we conceding. I, I I don't. No, nah, we're not conceding. 2-0 to United. Oh, lovely, very, very nice and optimistic. So, uh, Patreon backers, stay tuned for some bonus content. Everybody else, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that um, interview with Daniel. Um, uh, trying to get some more interviews back on the show now that I'm in a position to do so. So, uh, love, love, just absolutely love talking to people and getting different voices on the show. Um, so you don't just have to listen to us for what has been an unreasonably long time. Should we leave the people to get on with their week, Ed? I think we should. 
It's another long show, isn't it? Guys. We've been talking for hours. <laughs> um, so we'll see everybody after the Leicester game, some sometime in between the Leicester game and uh, the, the Fulham game at the weekend after that, when now... The season is business is picking up in the weeks coming up, and we hope you'll stay tuned to the Rankcast for all your um, tri- uh, joy in triumph and commiseration in defeat. Not that that is even a thing that we know what it even means. See you next week. <laughs>